Hello and welcome back to another episode of On Spec. I am your host, Ryan Barath. We've got a lot of gear talk today. I'm going to jump right into it. We've got uh, some club building FAQ. We've got some new club talk and, uh, you know, some other stuff that's going on. Things that we've talked about in the past that are now available um, in the marketplace, or at least uh, depending on where you're located. And so let's dive into that story first. Um, as it was first spotted on the Golf WRX forums, which is really cool. We are part of the Golf WRX radio network. And the great thing about our community is they're very active in sharing information and sharing knowledge and also sharing when things go on sale. Because um, the perfect example of that is the newest wedges from Costco have been spotted in Costco stores. This was something that I wrote about about a month ago now. And, you know, since I originally wrote about it, there's been a lot of talk about them and what it means to produce a golf club. And I've talked to people in the industry. You can check out the Golf Direct YouTube page. Had a conversation with Chris Fischel. But overall, like, there are other things that, that all go into this product, right? There are people that came up with a, a concept and approached somebody to help them design it, then approached a manufacturer, went through that, went through the testing process, and at the end of the day, created a product that they can sell for a very high value um, or like a, like a high value to the consumer product, right? And, uh, you know, it was funny because when I originally uh, brought up the idea of wedges after the putter came up, people argued uh, in a lot of different ways. You know, like, well, you know, golfers don't, you know, they... they they want a wedge that does this, or they're not going to get the versatility, or they're not going to get this, or they're not going to get that. But, you know, that's that's because you're looking at it from a negative perspective. And I can see from someone who works in the industry why people would be defensive of their own product if, you know, Costco or someone else comes out with a product that offers a huge amount of value to the consumers, or anybody does that, Right. And, you know, there are other brands within the golf space that are offering a ton of value in the marketplace when it comes to irons and wedges. And uh, I'll let you do your own research on there. I'm not going to name any specific brands in this case. But uh, you know they are if you're into direct consumer products in the golf industry, so you can figure that out. But what happens is, is the fact that you have the opportunity to, with enough money and know-how and being able to go through these processes to develop a product. And, you know, when it comes to true development and research and development, that's where the the big OEMs definitely have an advantage because they have huge teams that are always pushing the envelope as far as design and technology and stories and fitting parameters and all these different things. And I say stories for a number of reasons because they do have a marketing team behind them to introduce you to new products, right? And I think that's also something that's really important. But when it comes to social media and the modern world that we live in, people are used to or getting more used to just buying things online and trying them out. And if they don't like them, they can return them, right? And, you know, for me, for example, I never thought that I would buy a mattress off, you know, something on, online and just have it delivered and, and it comes in a box and whatever. But it became just common practice and made the decision, bought a new mattress that way, right? And it's because of that, it seeped its way into other parts of our lives. And, you know, thanks to Amazon and just direct-to-consumer in general when it comes to products across the board, 
there's all kinds of subscription services for golf balls and coffee and razors and all these different things, right? And because of that, golf has taken advantage of this opportunity to reach directly to the market that they're looking at when it comes to consumers and say, look, we have something different if you want to try it. By all means, we offer these, these warranties and these guarantees, and it's done really well. So where am I getting with this? Because as I said earlier, it's people get defensive when they're like, well, you're not going to get this, and you're not going to get this, you're not going to get this. But we have to remember the fact that the golf consumer that we think of or that I think of all the time also relates to not just myself as like a complete tech head, but it relates to regular golfers as well. And what I mean by this is the fact that, you know, obviously when it comes to big OEMs, they can put marketing on television, which becomes very expensive, or you see print ads directly in golf magazines or on websites. And all of this adds up to targeting people that are looking at golf. And when you put together the fact that, and I, I actually, I never really realized this for a long period of time, but if you think of what just the an internet search does, right? They're looking at SEO, so search engine optimization. And I've, compl- I've done this entirely on my own as well, and I kind of realized once I got into, you know, writing, and it's not really what I do, to be honest. I just kind of cover stuff, and, and I have the opportunity to write about it. But if I'm looking at something where I go, oh, man, you know what? I really want a new mattress. I should look up the best mattresses online. Well, of course, thanks to marketing and uh, a bunch of stuff that goes on in the background of the Internet that I don't really understand, then I get all these lists of sponsored stuff and all these other things that come up, right? And... It works the same in golf equipment. It works the same when you're looking at a coffee maker. Like, what are the best coffee makers under $500 or espresso machines or whatever, right? And so with all of that, you know, you start getting these lists and everything like, and um, you get these lists. And from there, people start looking at products. And that's what the golf industry, a lot of companies, these directing super companies have done. And when it comes to Costco, people are going to walk into a warehouse that they have. And you're going to have a regular golfer that maybe plays 10 times a year has no idea what a bounce bounce on a wedge is and just knows that, oh, you know, I mean, I can go to a golf store and spend $150 on one wedge, but I can get, I don't know, I can't remember the price. It's between $150 and $200. And they can go, wow, I can get three wedges and I get a gap wedge and a sandwich and a lob wedge. And I've only ever had a sand wedge before. And now for the price of that, I can get a lob wedge, which looks to me like a 60 degree and a 52. And boom, I'm ready to go because I already got a pitching wedge and I'm excited to go out and play. And we have to take this into account. Because someone's going to get a ton of value out of that, and they can go to a fit, they can go see somebody, and maybe get their line goals checked, and you know, boom, twenty dollars later, they've got three wedges bent, and they're just happy, and they're able to play with new wedges, and they play better, and they have fun, and that's all that matters, right? I'm not talking about and maybe they break a hundred. Right? It doesn't, it doesn't really matter. I'm super curious to see these. I'm actually been trying hard to obtain a set uh, through the channels that uh, you know just everyone else has because. Uh, Costco doesn't, Costco's not in the business of giving stuff away for free to people that to review it. They don't really care, um, which is fine. That's their whole business model. It's totally cool. Um, and I appreciate the people that I get to talk to. And I've talked to, uh, Tim Farmer who works at Costco about the putter and the wedges and the golf ball. And I've talked about all the stuff and the, and the wedges are out there now. And I think if you're looking for great value, I think it's something that's really neat. I mean, let's be honest. Like, again, if you're someone or you have a friend, you got a friend out there who plays golf and they don't play that often. And they're like, oh, man, I need a new wedge. And it's like, why don't you get three new wedges? And they're all brand new, and you can do whatever you want with them, right? So I think it's a cool product. It is available now. 
And this leads into kind of the rest of what I want to talk about today. Because a question that I get all the time is about value. And, you know, on the other end of the spectrum are the Titleist Concept Irons, which were just released as well. I wrote a piece about it for GolfDirects.com. Remember, you can check it out. And I've posted pictures of them on my social media. And we have pictures, uh, in-hand pictures as well. It'll be going up on the site too. But you can follow me along at RDSBrath on Twitter and Instagram. And then you can follow the show along specifically at OnSpecWRX on Instagram as well. Now, the concept irons are a really cool idea because it's basically taking the idea of a concept car, hence the name. I, I might, I'm going to try not to use the word concept a thousand times in talking about them right now. But when you take this idea of pushing technology as far as you possibly can and then being able to you know, make up some of that cost by offering that product to the consumer it's very similar to a concept car, right? They'll make, we'll say we're going to make 15 of these crazy supercar concept cars and then we're going to sell them for whatever, zillion, millions of dollars, right? And that doesn't even come close to making up for the value of those vehicles, potentially. But what it does do is it helps with branding and that technology works its way down into other cars. Now, maybe you're not going to get the same technology from a concept car as you would in a seven-passenger minivan, but there are these lines that can be drawn from something that, you know, we're going to start with this, we're going to see what we can do with it, and eventually it's going to work its way down into things that, you know, regular consumers or people that are in a different price point can afford because of the ability to understand how they can better mass produce it, right? And all these things, there is this trickle-down effect when it comes to technology. And from there, when we talk about golf clubs, and I've seen comments, and, I, and I've talked to people at Titleist about this, and I, I kind of joke about it. I say, listen, don't even bother. You know, we have a comment section on our site, but you're just maybe just plug your ears and don't pay attention to it. Because a lot of people are going to say, you know, no one's going to buy these. And it's very similar to the car idea because, you know, just because you don't see them every day, you don't see Lamborghinis driving by every, well, maybe you do it depending on where you live, obviously, but I don't see Lamborghinis in my neighborhood driving around all the time. I see them on occasion, but, you know, doesn't mean they're not selling these cars. They, they sell a lot of those cars and they, they make good profit on them. Same when it comes to Ferraris or any other extremely high-end car or any high-end vehicle, right? And... What I mean by that is just because you don't see these golf clubs at your local golf course or wherever you play, even if it's a private club or a municipal golf course, it doesn't really matter. You're like, okay, well, they can't be selling a lot of these. And the perfect example of this when it comes to the consumer is PXG. When they initially launched years ago, everyone said they're going to go bankrupt. They're not going to exist. This is really stupid. And like, no one's going to buy these. Well, they're doing just fine. Let me tell you. And... I have worked in a high-end environment. And this is where my background, I think, really sheds some unique insight into the extremely high-end side of fitting and golf retail and the golf business, as well as an exclusiveness of it, and also the, you know, the municipal golfer, the everyday club member, because I'm exposed to both of those worlds, and I've been exposed to both of those worlds. I'm going to tell you a fun story. I was working in a fitting facility, which I've talked about many times before, 
and someone came in. Someone walked in the door. I was at the front desk because uh, everyone else was on lunch, so we kind of rotate, hanging out at the front. And gentleman walked in and was looking around and was asking about different clubs, and then he just went, got right to the point. They're like, listen, um, I play at this golf club, and a friend of mine just got some PXGs. And, you know, I, I really like to get a set. I've hit them. I think they're really nice. I want to get a set. I want to get the full set. I want the, I want the, they have drivers. Do they, they do drivers. They have fairy woods too. I just saw the irons. And I said, yeah, they have drivers and fairy woods and hybrids and irons and everything. Like go right down to wedges and putters. And he was like, okay, I just, I want a set. And I was like, uh, well, I mean, we can, you got to book a fitting. Like we're a fitting facility. We don't have anyone here to like help you right now. He goes, no, no, I don't got time for that. And I was like, uh, okay, so where are we going with this? And he said, well, listen, I, I don't want to get fit. I just want to buy these golf clubs. And I said, okay, well, just to give you an idea, like this is what the driver costs, this is what the fairway costs, and there's a bunch of different custom options, so it's going to, you know, it's going to vary. And he's like, I don't care. But I'm like, in my head, I'm thinking something's going, like, okay, this is cool, right? Um, what am I going to do with this? Like, how am I going to help this guy? And I said, do you have a couple of your, do you have your clubs with you by any chance? And he goes, yeah, I have, I have like my driver, and I have like, a, I have like half my set here. Like I was just, I was like practicing, and I thought I'd come by, I heard about this place. Okay. So I, I measured one of his irons. Uh, I just looked aloft on his driver, asked him about his wedges. And after about 20, 25 minutes of having a conversation, he was happy to hand over his credit card. We built him a blueprint based off of his current club specs, which he said he, that he really liked. And it was like $13,000 for a set of golf clubs. And he went very high and he didn't really, he, again, this gentleman did not care. And I thought, well, that was probably the coolest thing that's ever happened to me. It doesn't benefit me at all. I don't, there's not commission in this environment. It doesn't matter. He's going to leave happy with get his golf clubs in a couple of weeks, and I'll probably never hear from this person again. And that doesn't happen every day, but it happens a lot in places like that. And, you know, when it comes to something like the Concept Irons, for example, you know, you're not going to be able to just do that. You have to go get custom fit for these things. And once you get them onto a launch monitor and you compare them club to club, people will see a like a, an advantage versus something else. That's what they're there for, right? They're, they push the boundary of materials. They push the boundary of mass properties when it comes to using a ton of tungsten and moving uh, mass around and using a material that is extremely hard to work with. And so that means there's a, a, a higher burn rate. And what burn rate means is something goes out of the assembly line, it doesn't quite work right. It's, it's lost. It's, it's just a loss. They, their cost of manufacturing happens, but you know what? Unfortunately, it's just lost and they just, you know, gets tossed kind of thing. I'm sure they recycle materials and go back through that process. But what I'm getting at is we're looking at two different ends of the spectrum. A wedge is a known property. And yes, there are companies out there like Titleist and Cleveland and Ping and TaylorMade and Callaway, and they're pushing the envelope of wedge design. Right, even the new the new Mizuno has the very uh, high up mass with like the hollow two piece wedge head. All that stuff is going on. They're all trying to do something where they can manipulate the mass in a wedge, and there is a benefit to that. Now the benefit is incremental, but it is advancement. Right, that's what you see when it comes to new technology year over year over year. I think I'm using like a two or three year old cell phone by right now. I don't I don't even know which model my phone is. I have to look at it, to be honest, and it's not sitting in front of me. And I could get a new one, and it's going to be a little bit faster. It's going to have a better camera. It's going to have a better microphone. It's going to have a brighter screen. But the one I have works really good 
and people still can go into a store and pay, you know, new price for the one that I'm using, right? Because it, it's it's not so old that it's defunct. And the same comes with golf clubs living in the technology space because we are seeing incremental improvements. So when you go to a fitting you haven't been fit for a driver in a number of years, you're going to see benefits. Off the center, you're not going to see really better ball speed per se. But what you are going to see is when you miss it, which is most shots, you're going to see consistently better results over and over and over again. And that's what you get when it comes to drivers and metal woods and things like the concept irons, where they push the technology inside of those club heads as much as they can. Then we have the direct-to-consumer space, which is right now consumed by golf balls. And there are some iron companies out there. But when we look at the wedges, we're just going to focus on these Costco wedges. We're just going to compare these two for a second, okay? A wedge is a known property. You're looking at a certain sole design, a steel shaft, a grip, and then you have a sh- the shaping, the grooves, and you know maybe being able to mill it, either cast it or forge it, and then creating some type of mass property within the club head. And again, those are basically known. So if you are able to come up with a design and manufacture enough of them, and you know depending on how you're going to market it, then you have you can create a wedge, right? That's what Costco has done. They said, look, we're going to create a wedge. These are the margins that we want to operate on, which they are. They always talk about. Like everyone knows when you go to Costco, you're paying. The margins they operate on are very low, but they operate on volume. Whereas, so for them, they're like, okay, well, we're going to, these are the margins. This is what we want to sell. We're going to work with our suppliers to get heads and, and grips and shafts. Or uh, we're going to work with a design company and a manufacturer to bring this together. And boom, we have a wedge. And... That's not what that's not what's happening at major OEMs. And they're that's they're not the same thing. And they're not designed technically for the same people. And you have Titleist, which has over 70 people in their R&D department working on all these different materials and working with sourcing uh, metals and sourcing tungsten and working with manufacturers that want to try and work with this metal to create these faces. And all of that comes down to the ability to offer the absolute best technology possible. And that's where value comes into play because I've been asked this question a lot. I get asked it all the time when it comes to golf equipment. It's the next, kind of the next part of what I want to talk about here is that there are people that don't care what the price is. They want to know the performance of it. It's like looking at, you know, if you're, again, if you're looking at a supercar, it's like, oh, man, oh, I don't have enough trunk space for this. Well, no one cares when they're buying a supercar. They don't really care about trunk space. You want to know... How fast does the freaking thing go? How cool does it look? And can how many people can buy this? Not a lot of people? Okay, cool. I want that because it's exclusive. That is that market for that person who wants that product. Now, golf clubs, they don't live in a super high-end space. I mean, like $4,000 for a set of irons is very expensive. But, you know, compared to other things, it's really not that much money. Again, I, I've worked in both sides of this thing. That's a huge amount of money. That's more than my golf membership for years that I'm paying right now. So when I think about that, I'm like, that's a ton of money. But for a lot of people, it's not. And so you have people that value performance, people that value getting good value. And they can both live together. And that's the next thing that I want to talk about. So I've touched on the concept irons. That's enough of these, these two things here. But one of the questions that I get all the time, and this is going to lead into the question part of the show, welcome to part two, is value and what you really get. Right, And as I've said before, the person who walked in and, and was able to go through the a conversation 
and hand over their credit card and say, I want to buy that super expensive set of golf clubs, their their time to that the time to that person was like, I don't have time for this, I don't care. He valued his time more than getting the actual golf clubs themselves. Which is fine. I think you even shipped them to his golf club. He didn't even want to come back and get them, right? Like that's insane to me. But that's fine. People operate on different levels when it comes to golf. Or any number of things. So when it comes to oh, there's a new iron, there's a new wedge, there's a new driver. What is the value? What am I gaining? And it's this incremental technology improvement. If you value performance over anything else, you're going to get that with new equipment. And that's the thing that people don't forget, that people forget all the time when it comes to something. It's like the phone. I have not bought a new phone in years. And it works great. It's fine. It does everything it's supposed to do. It shoots video. It shoots... Um, it takes a lot really good pictures. It does all the stuff that I need it to do. Do I want the new one? Of course I want the new one. Have I looked at the tech specs of any new ones? No, because I'm, I'm not in the market at the moment. But I know they exist out there, and I'm curious, but I'm not so curious enough that I'm going to go spend whatever hundreds or maybe $1,000 on a new phone. That's totally fine. That's not what I'm in the market for. And when it comes to people looking for that performance level when it comes to irons or wedges or whatever... You're going to get that. And I relate this all the way back to the fact that I play a lot of golf with old equipment. And when it comes to trying old equipment, my scores don't really change that much, but I have to change the style at which I play. When it comes to irons and wedges, you're talking about a forge blade versus a forge blade. Have the technology's gotten a lot better? Yes. Have they become more consistent? Yes. Have iron shafts become way better, offering different weights and different profiles that offer better uh, ball flights and better fitting opportunities for certain players? Absolutely. That's what you're getting. And, you know, I don't have to manipulate a golf club to make it do what I want it to do when it comes to new equipment, but when it comes to the old stuff, you really got to work with it. And for a lot of people, and look, I'm not a scratch golfer. I'm like a five handicap. So I am always, you know, trying to better myself as best as I can. But when it comes to equipment and kind of hitting shots, I can kind of, you know, try and work it both ways sometimes. And I can kind of hit it high and kind of hit it low and hit different shots around the greens. And so when it comes to this older equipment, I can kind of figure it out. And, you know, after, you know, having it long enough now and playing enough rounds with it and going to practice with it, I know what to do when I have that certain piece of golf equipment in my hands. And a lot of people get really comfortable when it comes to irons or wedges and things like that. Now, irons you got to wear the grooves out of them to make them not perform unless something has changed in your golf swing. And that's one of the things I get all the time. It's like, should I get these new irons? I'm like, what irons do you have now? Well, I play a forged blade that's like five or six years old. Are they really worn out? Not really. Do you, is there anything you don't like about them? Do you want to hit your long irons higher? Or do you want, no, no, they're fine. Like, okay, well, here's what I would suggest you do. Go in and get a gapping on your irons. And while you're there, you're probably going to get suggested maybe a utility iron to help launch it higher, land it softer, create some better parameters in your longer irons, potentially. But maybe you don't need that at all. Maybe what you have is perfectly fine. And in which case, it's money well spent knowing that, say, the $50 to $100 it costs for a gapping session and maybe getting recommended a few utilities is worth way more than paying for a new fitting and getting irons that you're like, you know, they're really good, but what am I actually getting out of it? And this is for the lower handicap. This is where it comes to tour players, right? Like, there is a benefit to them when it comes to some fairway woods, but as I've touched on before, they're not using a lot of times, you're not seeing a lot of players go into these super strong lofted fairway woods, and a lot of times you're seeing more 
Five Woods as the first club because they don't need these clubs off the tee anymore. They're just going to whale at driver, and then they're going to go to a, a five wood or something, and then maybe a seven wood or a hybrid, and then they're going to gap with their wedges because they hit so many more wedges. And is there a big benefit when it comes to, say, a blade versus a blade from 10 years ago? Sole design, maybe a little bit of like shaping, depending on what you're looking at, and you know, better flow in the set, so better uh, center of gravity control in the set. I think engineers are always working with that, especially when it comes to like golf balls evolving and course conditions and swings evolving and all this stuff. There is this evolution when it comes to irons. But as soon as you get into something like a smaller player's cavity that's got some technology in it, uh, perfect example. I love using this example because I've hit them and I always think it's a really great iron is the T100. It's a very, very small iron. It looks tiny but it has a ton of technology packed into it with the tungsten. So you get a club that's extremely stable, but in a much smaller package. You're not going to get that out of a forged blade. You're just not, right? And then once you get into the higher handicaps, now you're looking at better gapping. You're getting at better trajectories and higher windows. And, you know, I, I, there was this funny thing that I put on Twitter. Remember, you can follow me along, RDS Brath, on Twitter and Instagram uh, during the match on... Monday or Tuesday, whatever it was, the Tiger Woods, uh, Justin Thomas, Rory, and uh, Justin Rose at the Payne Valley Golf Course there uh, because uh, Rory hit this iron that was like sky high. And people always say like, oh, man, I, I don't, I think I would hear all the time in fittings, I don't hit my irons, I hit my irons too high. I'm like, well, uh, you don't. Um, we could actually get you better like control and looking at descent angle and holding greens by hitting it higher. And then you move into a game improvement golf club that has a much lower center of gravity. It's got a hotter club face. And people are going to rag on the stronger lofts. But when you have someone who is, when it comes to higher handicappers, either very steep um, or a lot of times people sweep the, sweep the ball with their irons, they're not creating a lot of spin. So you have these irons because they're sweeping. If it's something that, you know, with a higher loft, they're going to create too much spin. And now you're going to create better flight windows for the golfer that the club is intended for and now you get better results. You're getting better results through fitting. The one thing that I don't like is when you see these reviews and like they're fun to do. Like they're really fun. They're they're entertaining, right? They're not. They're, I wouldn't even call them reviews as much as they are just kind of more of an entertainment product. And that's totally fine. They are what they are. But when you see someone on YouTube and they're like, I've got the new iron or and usually it's an it's iron. I'm specifically talking about irons here. I've got the new seven iron here from X brand. And we're going to see how far we can hit it. And I'm like, okay, well, it's great. I actually like, I, I'm friends with people that do this stuff. And it's like, it's very entertaining. But you also have to, you have to take into account, and this is why we're here to educate and talk about this. They're not the target audience for this, right? They're just not. Like they, something like a, a very lightweight shaft is not designed for someone who can swing a six iron at 95 miles an hour. It's designed for someone who swings it at, you know, 74 miles an hour. So you have to take that into consideration. And when it comes to worth, people who are looking for technology benefits are going to get that more than someone who's looking for a club that offers workability. Workability is a nice way to say it's not forgiving. Uh, you'll, you'll see that in lots of different uh, marketing material or you'll see it in uh, articles talking or comparing models is this is the uh, forgiving model, this is the more workable model, bringing lower MOI. It's not as forgiving, but people who are looking for that product are not really concerned about the extra forgiveness, maybe until they get into the longer irons, 
in which case you're building combo sets and all that other stuff happens, right? So that's where, when it comes to value for you as a golfer, you can play golf whatever you want. And I've said it a lot, right? Don't judge people by their golf bags. Don't judge golfers in general. Just enjoy the game how you want to see it. And there's a lot of people out there that enjoy the game from the equipment side of things. They, they love messing with gear. They love having the new stuff. And they love paying for absolutely every single advantage they possibly can when it comes to golf equipment. And that's what you get when you talk about value. Some people value that. Some people value just making sure they can go and play in all the clubs together, right? And so the value will always come down to you as the consumer. Will a new golf shaft, is it really good? Is it a good value? I don't know. Does it work like it's supposed to? Absolutely. Does it fit you? I don't know, right? There's no point of buying a $3,000 suit if it doesn't fit you, right? It's like, yeah, I spent $3,000 on my suit. I'm like, yeah, well, none of the buttons like line up or whatever, right? Like it just doesn't fit you. It's way too baggy or whatever. You didn't even have it tailored. And it's kind of the same thing with golf equipment. Yes, you can go and buy it. It's great. You have it. Fantastic. But unless it actually works for you, then there's no value to it anyways, unless you just want to own it. And that's totally fine too. I know people that are here, but lots of people that own very expensive guitars and they can't play them very well. Me, on my case, I don't own very expensive guitars and I'm not very good. So it works out really well. And that's how I relate these different things to golf equipment when it comes to value. So that was a long-winded answer. Very uh, traditionally going off the whole tangent line of thinking here when it comes to the show. But let's get into the question and answer part because, you know, I want to talk about these things because, again, I do the, I use questions on Instagram, RDS Brath on Twitter and Instagram. Third plug of the day, I think, third or fourth, whatever. It doesn't matter. Um, But pay attention. Usually it's Thursday or Fridays. Sometimes the afternoons are just a little bit slower, so I have the opportunity to just sit down and answer a lot of questions, as many as I can. Uh, I've had to start putting time limits in, essentially, like get your questions in before noon or whatever it is, because you only get like 100 things in an Instagram story, which I didn't realize until I went over a couple weeks ago, and I was like, oh, cool, okay, well, I didn't realize how many questions I was answering, and now my question thing's gone, and uh, the questions that I answered already are like disappearing from the start of this thing. I really got to limit it. So if you do see it pop up and you miss it, don't worry. They always come back, so just keep paying attention to that kind of thing, and get them in because I I try and literally answer everything either directly in questions or if it's a very specific one or something that I don't understand the way it was worded, I'll just reach out uh, via direct message. And I had some really cool ones this week. Um, Some are really simple to answer. Some are going to involve a little bit more detail, which is why I like doing the, bringing that, those questions to the show here because uh, to be able to type something out and really explain it is a lot more difficult using that format and this just works a lot better so the first one very easy what's the difference between practice golf balls and the standard ones you buy in the box Uh, the answer is nothing the the answer from a technical perspective is essentially nothing Uh, the question was revolving around practice pro v1s which come out usually a couple times a year you can buy them for your pro shop i think if you're a a club you can actually order them but i know some big box retailers will do a couple times a year they'll order them in and you see them for like I don't know, 25% off like the standard price of like a full price box of golf balls or whatever. Uh, They are cosmetic blemishes. Uh, They don't like using the term X out anymore because of a misprint or something. And I've been to the Titleist factory. I've I've gone with uh, Johnny Wonder from our very own Gear Dive here. Another fun show to uh, listen to here on the WX Radio Network. And 
Um, to get through the entire process to actually get the like the titles printed on it is like labor intense. It's insane. It's so cool. Um, so with that in mind, you know, by the time it gets to that point, and you know, maybe the machine just misses the mark where the side stamp is, or there's a tiny imperfection in the final coating or the layer of paint. Because every single golf ball gets manually inspected by hand. It's really cool. I actually got to sit through the process and point these things out and had some fun with the person who was there who has like 20 years experience working in the factory. And I was like, no, like I'm actually like, I want to help you for like a couple of minutes. I want to see how this works. And I want to tell you, I want you to point out mistakes that I'm seeing. And so I'm looking at golf balls and he goes, okay, that becomes, he goes, that becomes a practice. So he slip it down a tube and it goes to another thing. And then they'll stand practice on it because there was like a little misprint in them. One of the things. And that's all it is. And most companies are going to do this because it's a way to either send them off to ranges or high-end clubs that just want to have them as practice balls, or they box them up and they offer to consumers either to use as just your standard throw them in a shag bag practice bag. Uh, I call those people fancy pants golfers. <laughs> or you just have a lot of people to buy them and use them, and that's totally cool. I used to, and I worked in big box retail. We used to sell. They would sell out. They would be like a flyer special, Titleist practice balls. Titleist practice Pro V1s, and they'd sit on an end cap, and on a Saturday and Sunday, they'd be gone. And then maybe you'd get some for, like, the next weekend, but a lot of times, like, people come in and buy, like, four boxes of them because for them, it was a it was a special thing to be able to buy a premium golf ball for a very discounted price. And you don't see them as much anymore because you have this direct-to-consumer marketplace that are able to offer premium-level golf balls that may not be to the exact uh, technology uh, you're getting from someone who's designing everything themselves versus you know, buying from a manufacturer and branding them and going through that whole process. I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole right now. You can do all your own research online. Have fun with that. It's a very, very deep dive. Um, But because of that, you know, people load up on these things. And that's really the only difference. I'm not going to go any further than that. That's what it is. It's a cosmetic blemish. And there you go. The other one... um, that I got, and I really focus on the one, I get a lot of repeats, or I get a lot of very uh, consumer-specific questions, or customer, not cu- sorry, not customer, like reader-specific questions, people that follow me online, uh, like comparing things like that, and it's hard to do, so usually I'll like go back and I'll say, hey, like I don't really know anything about your golf swing, like maybe I can help you this way, uh, but this would, these are all like more generic questions, so it's, it's easier for me to help with that. Um, how to bend a putter. So this question was specifically dealing with plumber's necks, which is like an answer-style neck. Um, do you bend right at the bottom of the, the the neck towards the head, or do you bend at the top where the hosel is? You need to bend at the top where the hosel is, but you also have to be careful because you can only get so many degrees out of that before you start messing with the toe hang, or you can potentially mess up uh, just the neck and kind of bend it wonky. Uh, I've got a number of great deals on putters that people have bent to all hell, Uh and it takes me an hour to straighten the neck out and get it to the right lie and lie loft when you set it down and it like sits way open or it sits way shut. And it's like someone has definitely messed this thing up. Uh, a really fun way to know, and I kind of see what I'm talking about here, is if you go and look at an old Scotty Cameron mill spec putter. I happen to have one. I think it's one of the coolest, like one of the nicest putters they ever made. Uh, they're like the carbon steel ones that have like the pro platinum finish on them. Uh, just a nice putter in general. But one of the cool things that they did with that putter, which I think is really neat, is at the where the hosel is, you can see this little notch and it says lie. I know it's simple, but it's kind of like one of those cool visuals where it's like, you know, it doesn't really do anything, but, you know, that's where lie is measured on the putter and that's where you also bend it. So when it comes to that style, that's where you do it. When it comes to double bends, 
There's ways to bend it right at the bottom. There's ways to bend it within the double bend of the shaft. So you can go through that. Again, you're, you can potentially mess with toe hang depending on how much you mess with the lion loft. So then there are other ways to kind of wiggle around it. Um, but that's the way to do it. The other thing too I want to touch on, which I actually just thought of, um, people asking about arm lock putters. Thanks to Bryson and other players on tour. I think Webb Simpson as well. Keegan Bradley. That's three. That's enough. Um, can you take a normal putter and make it arm lock? Well, first of all, you better be able to bend that putter like five or six degrees because you need to add a lot of loft to it because of the forward lean in the shaft. That's why when you see arm lock specific putter, something like the Kucher Betonardi, it has a ton of loft on it measured, but when you get into impact because of the forward press, it has your standard two or three or four degrees on it. Uh, so you can't just start bending putters to make them, uh, what is that, arm lock style because you could potentially break them. So if you're gonna try it, make sure either it's on a really crappy putter you're super confident you know what you're doing, or you're okay potentially breaking something. It's very simple. Uh, next question revolved around shaft weight. And again, this is this becomes more of a specific thing, but I also believe it's it's a very interesting thing to consider when you go into a fitting. Because there is a, a relative progression within your set, right? You'll have, generally speaking, a 50 to 60 gram driver shaft, 60 to 70 gram in your fairwood shaft, say 80 in a hybrid, I'm talking about like a kind of like what you see more off the rack, right? Iron shafts will be anywhere from say 100 to 115 or even say 95 to like 115. Wedges you get around 120 and you'll be done with it, right? When you see more consistent results out of an iron shaft, a lot of times it has to do with the bend profile, but a huge factor of this is weight because for quicker tempos, more weight is better. For slower tempos, less weight is better. And this can be separated from flex, especially when it comes to graphite. You can get some pretty stiff 80 gram graphite shafts. You also get some super heavy and ridiculously stiff, say 120 gram graphite shafts. Steel, on the other hand, is very much related flex to weight. Say the 60 gram, the 60, there's not a lot of 60, I don't think there's really any 60s out there. You get some 70 gram steel, you get some, a lot of 80 gram. And as you move up, you're going to see ball flights that'll progressively come down. Uh, there are some in that, the 115 is kind of that magic range, 110 to 120 uh, is really that magic range where you can get some higher launch shafts, some lower launch shafts, and kind of everything in between. Once you get past that, you're looking at mostly lower launch, lower spinning profiles, and then lighter than that, you get into the, uh, the higher launching, higher spinning stuff. When you kind of pair these together, when you talk about tempo and you talk about maybe the length of someone's golf clubs, it's very important to know that if you are getting consistent results as far as contact, and that is one of the most important aspects of actually going through a fitting, is the shaft weight. And I've had people ask recently about, you know, my, my fairy wood is 65 grams, I smoke my three wood, I have a really bad time with my driver. And they'll, I ask, like, is it a shaft weight thing? Do you feel it's a tempo thing? Like, what's going on there? And it could be that the driver shaft is actually heavier than the three wood shaft, which is not the right progression. You'll see some players that'll use, a, say, a 70 gram and then 70 gram in their 3 wood, and then maybe an 80 gram in their 5 wood, or they'll just go 70 in their driver, 80, 80, or 60 and 70, 70. Um, I personally, I'm around a 65 to 70, and the 70 gets a little heavy. Uh, I'm around 60 to 65 grams in a driver cut length uh, weight, and then my fairy wood, 3 wood is about the 70 to 75, but my 5 wood, which is actually a 7 wood, it's not really a 5 wood, it's a 7 wood. Um, I've played 100 gram shafts in it. I have played uh, 80 gram shafts. So there's this like 15 to 20 gram progression all the way down. 
I, I tried the 100. I really like it, but it doesn't work when I'm carrying a hybrid uh, only because it goes from... Well, it does work. It actually, it's not a bad combo because they're designed to do different things. But the hybrid I was using and testing out had like a 90 gram shaft in it, but the ferry was actually way heavier. Uh, so from a total weight, if you're just looking at the build, you're like, this this is, seems like an odd setup. But when I hit them, it doesn't matter. And we're not hitting them back to back on the golf course. You can hit them back to back on the range, but on the golf course, you know, you grab a club, you hit it, you walk to your next shot. So there's this, you're not really concerned so much about club to club to club because of that, but it's a progression that people could consider. And if you're looking at, say, an, uh, comparing iron sets, maybe it has less to do with the balance. Maybe it has less to do with the head design. It has everything to do with the shaft weight and why you're making more consistent contact or lying. A line plays a big role too. But shaft weight is something that people really need to pay attention to when it comes to irons and then getting into those longer clubs because the shaft weight is going to play a major factor in your tempo, which is kind of like your little fingerprint on your golf swing. And it's going to help you get back to center because of these all these other factors working together. So pay attention to that when you're testing golf clubs or you're looking to buy something maybe used or you're looking to reshaft something because how it fits in your set is very important and how it works with your tempo and your golf swing and everything else that factors into your unique fingerprint of a golf swing will oftentimes boil down to shaft weight. Um, wedge bounce. This is a fun one and this is actually going to roll into the next question. Um, how does wedge bounce affect, uh, or sorry, how does wedge bounce, uh, how, do, how is the best way to set up your set? Sorry, that was a, I kind of messed that up. I was looking at both questions at the same time. Uh, so wedge bounce, in my opinion, now this is because of the way I play golf and how I use my wedges, um, you have to think about the shots that you're going to hit. And it comes down to loft, and this plays a factor too because a lot of people ask, how should I get my wedges when it comes to my pitching wedge to my lob wedge if I have four clubs available? And I'll say, don't worry about the lofts, worry about your distances. What distances do you want to hit and the shots that you want to use? Because going back to the very start of the show, one of the things that I hear a lot of people kind of moan about the Costco wedges, they don't have a 50 degree, they only have 52. Well, first of all, most people don't even know the loss of their pitching wedges anyways, so it doesn't matter. So like, ease off a bit. Um, but what you're looking at is, okay, well, my pitching wedge say is 45. Uh, I like using, I like pitching with my gap wedge a lot and I make full swings of my gap wedge. So you're looking at the bounce in that club to be either close to your pitching wedge or what would be considered a full sole grind. Um, so like higher bounce. You're not gonna see a lot of heel and toe relief on a lot of gap wedges out there. Then you get into the say 54 to 60, or sorry, 54 to 56. For a lot of people, this is a still a sand wedge club and they're gonna use it out of the sand because they don't want the lob wedge to go too short. It may be a club that is very much a touch shot or, or like a rescue uh, in case of emergencies, pull out the lob wedge kind of thing. So for me, my advice with a sand wedge is always to go mid to higher bounce unless, uh, mid, yeah, mid bounce or mid to like slightly higher bounce unless you play in very soft conditions or very soft sand or you're someone who's very, very steep. There's Again, this is a generalization but say a mid bounce with a lot of heel and toe relief because what that allows you to do is it gives you the bounce out of those softer conditions if you are in them where it is you know around the greens if you're in a little bit longer lush grass and you're in you know standard kind of bunker sand then you get that opportunity to have the bounce it's not going to dig on you but around the greens if you have to open it up a little bit you get that with the heel and toe relief so again 
full full sole with the gap wedge, mid with some a lot of relief on the heel and toe for a sand wedge, and then for the lob wedge, which should be 58 to say 62. This is all dependent on you. I personally like the mid with a lot of relief because it's very versatile, right? People talk about the new Tiger Woods wedges from TaylorMade. Uh, that's a that's a grind that a lot of people have used in the past. I think Artisan has done a fantastic job kind of perfecting that. Uh, and you saw that in some of the old Nike Engage wedges, which is why I have a bunch of them around because they're so good. Uh, my wife I, my wife saw a set that I was using, an old set of Engage wedges. She hit them around the, the greens with a shot that like um, with like a shaft that was a little too heavy than what she would like normally use in her wedges. It was like these are like really cool to use. She was struggling with the wedges that she had, and so I built her a gap wedge and a sand wedge with like the old uh, Nike Engage, like the dual sole, which is very similar to the Artisan and to the other one that I've talked about, the Tiger Woods one. And it is that like mid bounce, got some uh, upfront relief, you got a lot of heel toe relief, and they're just a very versatile, great feeling wedge through the ground. And that to me is kind of the idea of what you want in that sand and lob wedge, especially in the lob wedge, because it gives you that versatility in a lot of different scenarios. Now, again, if you play in very soft conditions a lot of times, go higher bounce. If you play in very, very firm conditions, maybe you want to go lower bounce, maybe in slightly wider sole but very low bounce. Uh, a lot of different options out there. But that's how I like to set them up. But as always, go through the fitting process or at least go through some of the, the, the um, what's it called, like the surveys on a lot of the wedge uh, companies, companies that sell wedges. They have surveys on their site. So just be honest with what they're talking about and what they're asking you. And you're going to get some pretty good recommendations from those as well. Uh, now, part of bounce, and does bounce affect launch angle and all those different things? Uh, inherently, uh, yes and uh, no from a loft perspective. From a dynamics perspective, yes. Because if you have something that's very high bounce and you're playing in firm conditions, well, then you might end up finding that you're hitting it a little lower because you're catching it lower on the face, but you're going to maybe spin it a bit more, right? Um, and then... Same opposite end of the spectrum. If you're playing wedges that are too low bounced, you find that you're maybe entering the ground or digging a little bit more than you should, or like, uh, then you might find that you're hitting the ball a little higher on the face, which means it's not going to spin as much, and you're getting these more what I would call floaters. Uh, I've seen them both in fittings. I've seen them both myself when hitting different shots with different wedges. Um, I noticed this year uh, I had a couple different wedges that I was messing around with, and I still mess around with them all the time because uh, it's not the strongest part of my game. Maybe messing around is part of the problem. But I was have I was trying a very high bounce lob wedge just because I thought, you know, me I feel like I take big divots and I feel like the course conditions I get are really soft, especially in the springtime. So I'll like, oh, give it a try. I wanted to use it. And as soon as it started to dry out, my wedge game went just to garbage. And I'm like, I can't control it around the greens. I'm hitting a lot of really low shots that are just running through. Um, I feel like I'm putting a lot of spin on the ball and creating the dynamics I've hit on my launch monitor. I've, I understand the dynamics of hitting a lower launching, lower spinning wedge shot, but I just wasn't getting it out of this wedge. And, I, and the big problem was the bounce was too high uh, based on the conditions that I was playing in and the shots that I was trying to hit. As soon as I went to something that was lower bounce, which is one of my older wedges, boom, got the results that I wanted, again, most of the time. I'm not perfect. But that's where it comes down to where the bounce plays a huge factor in the shots that you're going to hit around the greens. Uh, because again, the lob wedge, or sorry, the, the gap wedge as a full swing club, not a huge deal, right? Kind of get it matched in line with your pitching wedge or whatever it is. Maybe your pitching wedge is already a, a wedge from a set, right? But it's one thing to consider when you start getting close to the greens and the shots that you hit 
and noticing and taking account of what the shots you're actually hitting and where they are ending up. If you're ending up short and they're going too high or they're going long and you're just you're finding you're carrying your targets and you're ending up more at the back of the green because you're just launching them too low, even if you're getting a lot of spin on them, you're just not getting the distance control properly. And that comes with launching it too high with not enough spin or low with too much. And that's about you know, again, paying attention to your golf game and how that relates to finding the right gear and finding the right gear comes down to making sure that you're getting good value out of if you're going to use a club for a long time you get the right one and you know maybe it just means going in and just buying new wedges like the costco wedges wow i just segued that all the way back to the beginning like one of those callback stand-up comedy routines which i very much enjoy that was not intentional i did not write that down i'm gonna pat myself on the back and say as always everybody thank you for listening to the show this week I hope you found it useful to everyone who reached out on Twitter and Instagram uh, this week just with questions. You can always follow along. I will do another question and answer this week at some point, usually later in the week. Uh, Again, Thursday and Friday, pay attention there. I never have a set time. Usually when I have a couple hours, I try and put them out there. Um, And that is RDSBrath on Instagram and Twitter. Remember to follow along as well at OnSpecWRX on Instagram as well. Really hope you enjoy the show this week. And as always, thanks for listening.